so over Christmas, um, I've been doing some reflecting. I'm sure we all have. Uh, I've realized I was in my fourth different house um, in four different parts of the country putting up a Christmas tree in the last six years. Um, so I'd like to think that we've kind of got the relocating thing down to a T now, um, except we really haven't. <laughs> but here we were, Christmas 2021, um, new place in a very lovely St. Margaret's on Thames, highly desirable place to be. Um, you know that, you all live here or in and around this area of West, Southwest London. Is it, is it West London or is it Southwest London? I'm not quite sure. West. West, West Southwest? Should we? The planes come straight. Okay, all right. West Southwest. Is that okay? West Southwest. All right. So we can give us a particular bearing um, at some point. Right. I digress. <laughs> um, we found ourselves here, anyway, um, in this lovely house. You know, a lovely house we wouldn't you know, remotely be able to afford if we had to pay to live there. And so through this last year, we've, we've carried this kind of sense of just how fortunate we are to be here, to call this place home. It's a great part of the world. At the same time, many of you have kind of asked us how we're settling along the way, um, and you'll know that we've carried this sense of being in, in quite unfamiliar territory, a place where kind of a time where we had to spend a bit of time relearning how the world works. For example, um, the places that I've previously lived, um, you get on a bus and you tell the driver where you're going. And then you pay your fare, right? The driver tells you what the fare is, you pay it. Now, the first bus I boarded here, I got on, and I told the driver where I was going, and he kind of looked at me like, why are you telling me that? <laughs> so um, I tapped in, okay, assuming this was a bit like the train. Yeah, you know, we, we've, we know how to do contactless payment before we came here, don't worry. But then I started to wonder why nobody was tapping out when they were got off like you do on the train. I mean, how do they know that your journey's ended and that you're not going to just spend the whole day on the bus going round and round and round? Um, as my children would probably quite like to do. Which is an idea, actually. That could work quite cheap now, couldn't it? Um, which is why everybody on the bus, um, probably like most of you right now, was wondering, who is this absolute plum who is asking the driver, how do I get off the bus? Um, and for the record, the driver just looked straight ahead and just pointed at the door. <laughs> sort of, okay. Like I said, unfamiliar territory. That in itself wasn't as bad as the time that I traveled down to meet the bishop. It was the final part of my formal interview for this post. Um, and I was pleased to find a great riverside spot to park. Um, some of you are way ahead of me on this. And I returned to find my car sitting on a small island of tarmac, <laughs> entirely surrounded by water, with no obvious way off the island. Um, and, uh, well, I thought this is bad. I thought at least I spotted a guy who had taken his shoes and socks off and was trying to retrieve his bike. So, you know, it could have been worse. I thought at least I'm not the only idiot this time. But yes, 40 miles from the coast of the UK, the far side of London from the sea, it turns out you have to be aware of the tide times. Um, and the phrase that came to mind was Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Now, the book of Daniel, which we're looking at, is all about some people trying to work out how to live in unfamiliar territory. Some of you will know what that's like. Maybe some of you have lived abroad. Uh, maybe some of you are living abroad right now. Perhaps out of choice, perhaps not. Either way, um, you know, first up, I'm so glad that you're here. And when you live abroad, do you 
experience not just kind of practical differences like that, but also a kind of cultural shock, uh, culture shock, or the, the contrast of this unfamiliar environment. And at its heart, the book of Daniel is, is written really, I think, to us to address the question, what does it look like to honor God in a strange and unfamiliar culture? How do we live faithfully in a world opposed to that? Daniel's a story about um, living in exile. Exile is this major theme of the Bible. Um, there goes the clicker. <laughs> Just talk amongst yourselves while I put the batteries back in. Otherwise, I'm going to have to do my best Chris Whitty impression. <laughs> Next slide, please. Brilliant. We're good. Okay. Where were we? Exile in the Bible. Um, major theme. It, it all starts, the Bible all starts with this... Um, story of, of humanity being exiled from the Garden of Eden, the place of God's presence, his blessing. And the story ends in the Bible with God's people finding their home in the Garden City, the New Jerusalem, in a renewal of all things. Kind of exile coming to an end when the relationship between uh, creator and creation is restored. And everything in between that in the Bible, can be kind of looked at through this lens of location. Uh, where are God's people? Are they at home in the place of blessing and comfort? Or are they in exile in the place of trial and challenge? So let's take a look at the opening verses of Daniel. If you've got a Bible, feel free to follow along or an app. I'll put um, some of the verses up on the screen, but it's great if you can see some of those verses in the wider context. So we'll take this from the top. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure of the house of his God. So, um, obligatory map moment. Um, in the context of the ancient Near East world, Israel was located in a kind of no man's land between three great superpowers. So um, I'm not sure if you can see it. And Well, next to the Mediterranean Sea, that's Israel there. Oh, oh, we got a mouse. Amazing. Who needs a pointer? So there we go. Uh, Brew is very kindly pointing out where Israel is. There we go. You can see Jerusalem there. Capital down a bit. There we go. Cross a bit. Wonderful. Um, and uh, what you've got is, you've kind of got Egypt down there to the south, and you've kind of got Assyria to the north and across a bit, and then you've got Babylonia um, over to the east. And Israel was kind of on the way between some of those superpowers. So each time one of those superpowers went to invade another of the superpowers or to go to war with them, their route would often take them through Israel. So Israel was this kind of small nation in a vulnerable situation on the way to somewhere else. But that was okay because God had brought them into this land. He'd given them this land. It was part of um, the, the covenant. Uh, a covenant is a, a special relationship based on a promise or an oath that God made first with Abraham. He took Abraham to, to this land. And then he brought uh, Abraham's descendants back into this land after their exodus in Egypt, if you know those stories of uh, Joseph and Moses, and God makes an, an, another covenant with the, the people then. 
And then the high point of Israel comes under King David, sort of reigning in Jerusalem there, with whom God makes this kind of third covenant, uh, that an heir of his will sit on the throne forever. But we're left wondering who this heir is going to be, this eternal heir. Because after David, things start to go wrong, there's civil war, and then there's this kind of repeat of what happened in the Garden of Eden at the start. God's people choosing to live in his world without him. And so God warns them, keep going on like this, the same thing is going to happen to you as happened to Adam and Eve. I'll stop protecting you, and these big superpowers all surrounding you will conquer you and carry you away from your homeland, off into exile. And educated young men in Israel like Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah would have grown up with the words of God's warning spoken through the prophets like Jeremiah hanging over them. Uh, They would have known that exile was on the cards. And if they'd read what, what Jeremiah wrote, which seems likely, they would have known that the exile was not just going to last a year or two or three, you know, like this pandemic or four or five or whatever they say it's going to be now. It was going to last 70 years. Let's hope this pandemic doesn't last 70 years. So if this exile took place in their lifetimes, if it happened in their lifetimes, they knew that chances are that they would live the remainder of their lives in exile. They'd die far from the land of their birth, their promised inheritance. And that's exactly how it all plays out in the end. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, besieges Jerusalem. He conquers it. And as he does in other examples of of conquest, he he took away back to Babylon all the money, the treasures, and uh, these kind of articles of religious practice in the defeated country. Puts them in the temple of his own god. Um, It's a kind of a sort of my god's bigger than your god play. But it's not just the stuff that he takes away. Verse 3, the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Listen to this for an impressive social media profile. Okay? Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. It's the cream of the crop sort of has influencer written all over it. And they are to learn the Babylonian language, study its literature, they eat for the king's table. It's a three-year program or process of formation, preparing them for a a lifetime of service to Babylon, this nation, this empire that has conquered them. And here we meet our four heroes, the Hebrew four, as Jeff Lucas calls them, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And to complete their transformation, they are given new names. So this, yeah, goes way beyond sort of surface stuff. And it's a clever move. So Nebuchadnezzar could just conquer and annihilate. He could just take the people into slavery and make them work like the Egyptians did after Joseph. But instead, he handpicks from them the nobility the young nobility, the future leadership of Israel, and he sets out to indoctrinate them. It's a program that's designed to strip them of their identity and culture and reform them in the image of the Babylonian culture, to make them Babylonian. 
So what you've got, commentators suggest, are four teenage boys, probably 13, 14, 15, that sort of age, dragged away to a land far from home and everything familiar to them into this culture that is renowned, is known by historians you know, for its violence, its immorality, its injustice. And these boys would have gone there knowing that they would likely never see their homeland again. Just imagine what that might have felt like. I remember the overnight flight when Jess and I moved to Uganda. I didn't sleep very well, but I remember after dropping off about halfway there, I woke up and just looked at the kind of moving map thing and realized we were over Darfur, which was you know, in the news at the time for uh, all the atrocities taking place there and thinking, wow, we are, we are a long way from home and we are getting further. I have no idea what life is going to be like when we get there. It was amazing, by the way, um, but I didn't know that at the time. So this um, three-year process of indoctrination takes four forms. These aren't my headings, but I think they work quite well. Um, first, there's the isolation. I don't need to preach uh, a sermon on the negative effects of isolation <laughs> anymore. I know, we get it, and it sucks. And one of the most subversive aspects of isolation is that it makes us prone to influences that we'd be less vulnerable to in community. You know, security services have been deeply concerned about the, um, you know, these past few years for the potential for radicalization during the lockdown. And that's because you know, isolated people are so much more easily influenced and radicalized, which is why Nebuchadnezzar took these young leaders away, far and away from their home culture. Second, enculturation. Uh, the boys are taught the language and literature of the Babylonians. You know, literature may seem like a, a fairly weak play to us in this kind of digital age, but literature is how uh, you know, oppressive regimes have historically shaped their subjects. Think Nazi Germany, think North Korea. In fact, there was a, a story just at the end of this week when I was preparing for this where a judge had taken a, a young man who had been radicalized by the far right, I think it was, um, and he'd, he'd sent him away, and part of the conditions he put on him was he told him to go and read some literature, read some different literature, and he brought him back for review, and the story was basically saying the judge was quite pleased. The guy came back, and he'd brought with him Twelfth Night, I think, and it was Pride and Prejudice, I think, and he said he got on quite well with Twelfth Night, but didn't like Pride and Prejudice. But anyway, interesting that a judge today was still prescribing literature, what you read, as something to shape who we are. Third, uh, integration. They're brought into the palace under the king's own roof. They're exposed to the lavish lifestyle of the king. This means special foods and delicacies, probably access to the king's harem, the sex slaves. Hey, lads, isn't this fun? Again, very hard to withstand. Fourth, identification. Names are important, and the meaning of names is important. I'm not so much perhaps in this country at this time, but in many cultures, and certainly in the Bible. You, know, you look through the Bible, and most of the time when somebody is named, that meaning of that name is given a little footnote at the bottom of the page. And, and the, the name nearly always relates to something that is happening in the story, what's going on in the story. So these Hebrew boys are stripped of their names, which are part of their identity, and they're given new ones. Jeff Lucas describes this as an act of ancient identity theft. He says this, The name Daniel means Elohim is my judge. 
Elohim is one of the Hebrew names for God. Daniel's new name, Belteshazzar, means may Bel protect his life. Bel is one of the gods of Babylon. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is the personal name of the God of the Bible. Shadrach means Aku is exalted. And Aku is another Babylonian god. Mishael means who is what Elohim is. While Meshach means who is what Aku is. Azariah means Yahweh is my helper. Abednego means servant of Nebo. Yet another Babylonian god. Renaming the boys is an act of control, of ownership, of humiliation. Slaves used to be renamed. Many still are today. You know, it struck me that these are still the same tactics and strategies employed by people who kidnap children today and turn them into child soldiers. Or think um, Boko Haram and the Nigerian schoolgirls. In modern parlance, we would say that Daniel and his friends were trafficked. They were kidnapped, stripped of identity and their culture and renamed. They were redefined, not least when it came to their, their faith, their religious beliefs. That was the goal of this process. So the obvious question, which you may have, is why a series on Daniel now? Um, Daniel is an interesting, quite complicated book at times, um, alongside all the kids' stories, which probably shouldn't be kids' stories involving being fed to lions or burned alive. Um, you've got some pr- pretty intense prophetic imagery, including some of the most important passages in the Old Testament setting the scene for the, the future Messiah, for Jesus. I remember around the turn of the, the millennium, a whole bunch of preaching on the book of Daniel because there were some sort of illusions that people linked to kind of end times, which people were trying to uh, apply to this particular date in history, wrongly, I think. Um, But the rationale for this series on Daniel now comes from a couple of places, really. The first is that Daniel is a book all about working out what it looks like to live faithfully and fruitfully in challenging conditions. So Daniel is essentially this story about a young man and his friends whose lives are swept up, uh, overtaken in circumstances beyond their control. They find themselves in... Um, this unfamiliar situation where there are legal and cultural restrictions on what they can and can't do, restrictions that they had never imagined facing, which I think has some resonance for us today. But what's fascinating is how Daniel and co. don't just sit back bemoaning their circumstances, waiting for the storm to pass before God, uh, before considering what God is calling them to be and to do as his people. Instead, they see in these circumstances a unique opportunity to demonstrate their faithfulness to God and to live and work to make a positive difference in the world that God has put them. I think there's an irony that much of the time that the church tends to teach an image of the Christian life sort of based on a comfortable ideal world or a world as we would have it living our best life in the circumstances of our choosing, which is certainly the kind of cultural norm of of our world today. The truth is the majority of the Bible tells the story of God's people living lives of faithfulness to God in difficult, challenging, uncomfortable circumstances, not of their choosing. That's just the majority of what's in the Bible, Old and New Testament. And the truth is for all the technology, the wealth, the medicine, the privilege we enjoy, 
Who of us feels completely satisfied with life? How many of us pray for God to take away difficult circumstances, not knowing if he will? I know that I do. But what if more than the circumstances, it's us that needs to change? What, what if that's the message of this book? And I don't say that flippantly, you know, knowing that there will be many of you who are dealing with bitter disappointments and intolerable pain in life. But I think that's exactly where the book of Daniel has something to say to us, something to teach us. You know, people, they say, you know, they have a problem with the Christian faith and with suffering, which is crazy because the Bible is full of stories of God's people suffering. In fact, it's secular humanism that struggles to give any meaning whatsoever to suffering has very, li- of, of very little of value to say about it. The second theme I think makes Daniel such appropriate material for us to go to now at this time are the questions that we should, in all honesty, find ourselves asking about the culture and the world we live in today. We live in times when many are seriously questioning the direction our culture is going or has gone. I don't mean this in the sort of you know, nationalist, good old days kind of way. Um, I'm not looking back to a bygone era. If, if anything, it's about looking forward to a glorious future where the kingdom of God comes in all its beautiful fullness. Leaning forwards into that, not harking back to something before. But my generation is the one that really grew up in the 90s. You know, the Cold War was over. It was the era of um, you know, cool Britannia and things can only get better. The excitement of a new millennium. But then we had uh, 9-11 and Afghanistan and Iraq. And tell me that doesn't still affect our thinking in this week when, what is it, more than a million people have signed a petition for Tony Blair to be stripped of his knighthood. And then there was the collapse of the global banking system and the bailout, which I think, you know, tripled or massively increased the national debt. I think in the year 2000, there was actually a surplus, wasn't there, in the budget. Then in the last decade, there's been the rise of the digital age. You've got smartphones, you've got Instagram, you've got dis- disinformation. Just look at all the harm going on with all the anti-vax stuff at the moment. You know, nearly every day, there's a story of somebody who had been taken in by the anti-vax stuff, who is on their deathbed, regretting that choice and trying to get the message out to others. Asking if they can take the vaccine now. And coincidentally, in all of this, a tsunami of mental health problems, particularly amongst young people. If that doesn't make us question our culture, then we are burying our heads in in, in the sand, aren't we? To our peril. Then there's the growing awareness of the perilous state of our planet, the impact of our lifestyles over the last 50 years or so. Um, Throw into that some of the outworking of the historic and current racial injustice, which turns out much of Western prosperity and heritage is connected to. Throw in political polarization, the rise of extremism, ISIS, uh, a return to Cold War rhetoric, a rise in populist leaders, that's that's a global trend. Genuine threats to democracy in places we never imagined that happening. And then comes along a previously unknown virus. Now, others will have articulated that all so much better than I have. But the core message is that the expectations that we grew up with at the end of the 20th century have simply not been realized in the first 20 years of the 21st century. Far from. 
It turns out we don't have all the answers, or at least the answers we thought we had in an increasingly secular age have not delivered the kind of personal, cultural, societal results that they promise. The world is in a bit of a mess. Our country's in a bit of a mess. And if we're honest, we are in a bit of a mess. And this should cause us to question the the values, the practices, the norms that we are living by and to consider what it might look like to live counter-culturally. Now, this should be true of Jesus, uh, of followers of Jesus in any age, but I think it's particularly pertinent at the moment. There's a lot more that could be said on that, but we'll um, come back to this over the course of of the series. I need to come into land. So we are... um, we are getting much more used to London now as a family, which I think is a, a good thing, and uh, at least in terms of making good use of transport. Um, at least I can you know, board a bus without causing deep social embarrassment now. And I haven't marooned the car again. That's good. Um, Baz Luhrmann, who's the Aussie director of, and, and rather random composer of an unlikely 1990s hit, uh, the Sunscreen Song, uh, you know, ladies and gentlemen, the class of 97. Uh, put your hand up if you remember that. Okay, oh, there you go, good, okay. But he had this line, there are a lot of good lines in that song, but um, he said, live in New York once, but leave before it makes you hard. Live in Northern California once, but leave before it makes you soft. And um, I guess the point you can make from that is, be aware, we need to be aware of how our surroundings are shaping us. How are you being isolated, enculturated, integrated, identified by the world you live in? Are you even aware of how much that has changed in the last 10 years? Are you aware of how much you have changed in the last, even the last two years, in your isolation? And the challenge for us as followers of Jesus is to consider that question, to live our baptismal vows, that we renounce the world and choose to live the way of Jesus. Because that's where our hope is. That's where life is. That's what the church needs to be about in a world that is struggling. So this um, is the book of Daniel, at least the part of Daniel we'll be looking at for the next six weeks. I think we're mostly going to look at the first six chapters. But no major application point uh, today. Some things to go away and think about perhaps and chew over, chat it over with some friends or family but um do come back next week and we'll get a bit deeper into daniel we'll we'll go back and we'll look at the whole of daniel chapter one if you have uh, time please do go away and read the whole book it's about 12 chapters long it's not that long you can read the whole thing um or another thing you can do as well as reading it um if you've got time just um search for the bible project video on daniel just go to youtube and search bible project daniel um and it will give you a a great kind of 10 minute introduction video to the book um trust me it'll probably be the most beneficial 10 minutes you'll spend on youtube this week i'm gonna finish by reading a verse from 1 peter chapter 2 over us and then we'll pray so would you please stand This is 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles 
to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's just be still a moment and um, just ask, what's the Holy Spirit saying to you this morning? Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit on us this morning and throughout the course of this series as we look at this story, these stories of of Daniel and his friends. Lord, you give us um, soft hearts ready to be taught by you. Lord, teach us how to live wisely in this year in a way that glorifies you and blesses the world around us. Lord, may this church, may we be known as people who are good news to those around us. And Lord, uh, we obviously would ask for easy circumstances, but Lord, I pray beyond that, that whatever circumstances we face this year, you would show us how to be faithful and fruitful for your kingdom and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.